Well, hello, and who would have thought I would have been saying this? Welcome to episode 40 of Pegasus Radio. In today's episode, we look at the games companies play. That one does sound intriguing, doesn't it? Let's dive in and see what I'm going on about. Well, 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 episode 40, and I'm still going strong with this podcast. So, as I'm recording today, there have so far been 2,675 listens to my podcast episodes. I'm so very, very grateful to all of those who have listened to episodes so far, and I promise I'm going to continue to try and bring you more value. So, let's try and bust to 3,000 plays shortly and keep going. So, today's episode, the games that companies play. Ooh, doesn't that one sound like an intriguing title? So I'm hopefully going to be a little bit like, I'm going to give you some x-ray glasses today for you to maybe see through some of the, uh, the kind of rubbish that companies do by trying to sell you things that they sell are perks or benefits for you or something to help improve your position when actually many of them are very clever ways for them to improve their own position. Now some of these are very obvious. Some of them you may... I guess kind of scratch your head out slightly and say, Paul, you may be, you may be you know, grasping at straws a little bit too much there. But, you know, hear, hear me out. And at the very least, hopefully, this may give you a better perspective about why companies do some things and for you not to always, you know, kind of grab them with two hands sometimes when they're offered to you. Because, as I say, in, in many cases, they're not always there to help you, in my humble opinion. Okay, the first one is notice periods. So... Obviously, I guess the the kind of three key notice periods that kick around out there are one month, three months, and six months. Now, candidly, notice periods are a bit of a funny one in my opinion. I I don't think they massively serve anybody. I think one month notice definitely works well. But I think when you start to get to three and six months, I do question the validity and the point of them. The reality is, if somebody's choosing to leave a business, then... For the sake of both the individual and the business they are leaving, there's no point in dragging out a notice period. The individual doesn't want to be there. It doesn't mean that they're not going to behave diligently while they're serving their notice, but the reality is they're equally no longer going to give 110%. And equally, from the business perspective, it's very difficult to plan around that individual. They can't. A business can't give somebody a new project to do, for example, because, because obviously they're, they're going to be letting the client down by doing so. So in often cases, the, the kind of work that they're doing is kind of bitty and, and maybe just kind of winding down. And on top of that, there's a morale issue. You know, the individual doesn't really want to be there any longer, and certainly your, your their, their colleagues are aware of that. So the longer you drag out the notice periods, I just I don't think it serves anybody particularly well. And the reality is, if I'm honest, that you know, a lot of businesses don't hold people to notice periods of three and six months for those very reasons. It, it, it doesn't serve either party. Now, however, companies will sell to you that the reason why they offer more uh, a higher notice period is to give you, you, some some peace of mind that, you know, should they have to let you go for any reason, then then you've got a healthy notice period um, in, in, in place. Look, the reality is, in most cases, if you are good at what you do, you will not struggle to find another job. Yeah, I guess there are extreme cases. If we have a recession like the one back in 2008, 2009, yep, I get some people may have taken a little bit longer to find a new job. 
than perhaps um, they, they would do otherwise. But that's, you know, you know, hopefully a, a kind of one-off scenario that, that may only happen every, God knows, 10 to 15 years. You can't legislate against that. The vast majority of the time, if you would suddenly find yourself out of work, I would hazard a guess, like say, right, if it happened today, you're in the uh, you're in most professions, whether it be construction, property, or even other wider industries, the vast majority of you would find a job relatively quickly, certainly within within a month. So, A, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a false promise that it kind of really is there to look after you. Um, where it is there, the, the the main reason I think a lot of companies do this is actually to act as a deterrent to other potential employers. So let me explain what I mean by that. The reality is 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 that if you are anything up to kind of senior delivery level, so um, you know, let's say up to senior PM, senior QS, senior building surveyor, the reality is if companies are recruiting at that level, they're often recruiting because they've got a relatively immediate need. So, you know, certainly waiting one month um, is, is acceptable. At that level, even three months can sometimes be seen as a bit of a bit of a barrier because companies maybe are not so keen on having to wait that long because they've got a relatively immediate need. Even worse is six months. And often that six month notice period can be enough to put a potential employer off of offering you a job simply because they need to recruit right now. If you think about it, six months, that's half a year, that's half a business cycle um, for the year where you know they, they, they've set themselves usually budgets at the beginning of the year to get through to the end of the year and they're recruiting against that. To, for somebody to say, I've got you've got to wait six months for me, will genuinely be enough to put many employers off going for that individual, however much they like them. Now, of course, there are exceptions there. If you're very senior and you're bringing potential business with you, etc., then companies may be prepared to wait six months. But certainly for the vast majority of roles, six months is a long time to wait and, and candidly, it will be a barrier for you finding opportunities elsewhere. In fact, some people I know who've had to serve their six months notice have often handed their notice in without even an opportunity to go to and just use that as a as a point to tick down to to wait for the right opportunity to come along which I, I don't think is necessarily that crazy if you're good at what you do but certainly be very wary when companies try to increase your notice period so to break it down typically i would say anything up to kind of that senior delivery level ideally if you can you want to be on one month notice if you tick into that associate bracket or kind of junior director bracket then then three months um the six months thing, I think, really should only be really um, reserved for very senior executives who, you know, frankly, would pose a significant business risk should they leave the business because of their potential client contacts, etc. So be very careful there. As I say, you may think it's there to protect you, but in a lot of cases, I would argue notice period is there to protect the actual company so that they, they know that com other competitors will be very dissuaded from trying to appoint you because it will be too long for them to wait for you. Okay, the next one I, I, I love, which I think people are, uh, are just, you're looking at this with rose-tinted glasses, um, is academic fees. So let's say you're already employed by a business and you decide to do an MSc. Uh, I don't know, let's say no, an, an, an MSc in construction law. I guess the cost there for a two-year um, uh, two study would probably be, let's say, around £10,000. So your employer very kindly, kindly in um, in speech marks, um, offers to cover that cost for you. And you think that's great. You think they're, they're really kind of trying to further your career. Now, here's the reality. Once you get that qualification, you will be you'll be billable at a higher rate, first and foremost. So, so they will earn more money from you once you've gone through that. Often case, they won't really give you 
the necessary support you need in terms of time to study for that. So often, if you're doing that, you're doing that in your own time at the weekend, you know, taking you away from kind of family time and, and, and maybe exercise, well-being, all that kind of stuff. Um, so you'll be having to do that. But here's the kicker. The thing they're very clever with is that they know it's a golden handcuff around, around or sorry, a weight around your neck, golden handcuffs, whatever you want to refer to it. They know that actually... So when suddenly you've got um, you've signed a ten thousand pound clawback, and that for you to leave to go to another business, another business would have to pay ten thousand pound to release you out of that, to then add an additional clawback for the company you go to. They know a lot of companies probably won't do that, and so that's a deterrent again for a prospective employer to um, make you a, a job offer. Secondly, they use it a very clever way to um, make uh, basically affect your salary. So basically to restrict your salary for the next two years so when you come round to that, that you know that first salary review after you're a year in they will say to you look we're investing in you here we're investing ten thousand pound for this msc for you so yeah you're not going to get a salary increase and what i often find is that companies will usually restrict individual salaries over the next two to four years of study such as that and what that actually does when you actually look at it in the grand scheme of things is that they end up paying a lot less than that £10,000. So let's say for, for argument's sake, to put some nuts and bolts on it, let's say you're a, a, I don't know, a, a senior QS, maybe you have, a, maybe you have an appetite for doing more within the construction law space, you're currently getting paid £50,000, perhaps that's, let's say for argument's sake, already 5 10k below market value. They agree to pay an MSC for you for £10,000. So over the next two years your salary stays the same with that £50,000 when you should really be getting paid somewhere circa fifty-five to 60000 On top of that, when you finish the MSC, you've then probably got another two years of clawback, i.e. if you leave in those two years, that you have to pay the company back or a, a prospective employer has to pay the company that money. So they've got an excuse probably over a period of two to four years to basically keep your salary below market value because they've got this, they've got this issue on you that you've got ten thousand pound that you owe them essentially. So again, really think about that one. Is it really out of the goodness of their heart that they're they're paying for that uh, additional qualification for you, or is it a very clever way for them again to trap you in employment and probably sub, uh, kind of keep your salary lower than it needs to be? So have a think on that one. The next is bonuses, or more specifically, the timing of bonuses. So some businesses. And obviously, it depends on the organisation. But some businesses uh, can do one of two things: either pay pay you a lower salary than market rate, but tell you that they pay a very healthy bonus, which they may well do. But often, case that bonus is usually paid maybe once a year. So again, it's a cyclical thing. They they know that you have to stay to see out that bonus each year. So they so they they probably know each year that they they've got a year's grace before you you potentially contemplate looking outside of the market. Particularly, if it's a very healthy bonus. It's a very clever way of them doing that. The other one is that they'll pay. They'll agree to pay a bonus. Let's say you have your review in January, but they won't pay the bonus until June. You know, again, the only reason why they're doing this is to make sure that you're not a flight risk to keep you in situ for longer than you need to be. So again, just have a think about bonus. I'll certainly have a think about a scenario where you're perhaps not getting paid what you should be getting paid relative to market, but you're getting a healthy bonus. You know, again, are they doing that out of the goodness of their heart? Are they doing that to really incentivize you for good performance? Or actually is it a very clever mechanism to keep you in place for for, for longer than perhaps you should do um, and, and probably dissuade you from looking at the wider market for a job opportunity.
The next is promotions, and particularly those promotions that are just a badge. So I can think of one very large QS and PM consultancy that play a masterstroke with this one. They hand out titles, job titles, like confetti. And what this does is it keeps the individual feeling that they're advancing, that they're doing very well. But in reality, those titles mean nothing outside of that business. So the classic title that gets a lot of people really trapped and pride really screws with them is that of associate. So there are some businesses, this one in particular I just mentioned there, who give out associate titles very readily. The reality is that associate title does not mean the same thing anywhere else in the industry. So typically, a typical associate, whether you be a, a project manager, a QS, a building surveyor, or, or even in other kind of industries, walks of life, an associate, associate director will typically be somebody who's generating in construction anywhere between, depending on where you are in the country, anywhere between, let's say, 400, 600,000 in fees per year. You'll probably be managing a team. You will probably have some key client responsibility and you may be getting involved in other wider areas such as business development. Okay, so that's what typically most businesses on the whole would describe an associate as. For businesses where they're giving out titles where it doesn't mean that in the slightest, it's a very, very clever way of trapping people again because people's pride screws with them. Because once you've got that associate badge, you're, you're well, I'm an associate. Why would I move? Why would I then move to be then go back a level and go back to being a senior QS? You need to genuinely look at what that title means. Is it actually a title that's reflective of the wider industry or is it just a title being used by your current employer to make you think that you're a higher grade than you actually are relative to market? So again, it's a very clever way of people um, being trapped at a certain level by, by using job titles for that reason. And equally, the same can be said of any promotion. Sometimes you will get a promotion and actually when you actually assess it and boil it down as to what you've actually what you're actually doing either a there's not a lot of difference between that and your your previous role or again it's a very clever way of kind of holding people so the the other one is when anybody becomes a director or a partner whether that be equity or salaried again you have suddenly gone up a notch in terms of companies uh, perspective other companies other employers expectations of what you where you are at that level to the point that it may put them off approaching you at all or it may be that they expect you to be doing a certain amount of work output for that level. It may be that they expect you to bring a client bank with you. And again, it's a very clever way for companies to bump somebody up to that director partner level and hence dissuade other companies from going after you as an individual. So again, just take the rose tinted glasses off. Look at why they're doing that. Is it is it again definitely in your best interest or is it actually in the interests of uh, of, of their of, of your your employer rather than you along with titles is the fact that they give a promotion and they but they the salaries are not where they need to be so the salary should is a lot lower than what you should be relative to the marketplace for the same title and level these are all clever little subtle ways that companies use to kind of trap employees into feeling that they're the ones being rewarded and looked after when actually the company is 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 kind of the company is a little bit like the casino uh the, the you know the, the house always wins and they're, they're using some very clever tactics to kind of trap you at probably kind of lower levels of salary than you need to be certainly lower levels of progression than you need to be by throwing titles at you that don't really mean a great deal so just be very careful around that 
The next one is getting you involved in kind of internal projects or internal reporting functions where you are given a, a role to do internally that um, you know certainly sounds exciting. You're reporting to the main board. You're doing something that's there to really help improve the wider business when actually it's, again, a very clever way of getting you kind of embroiled in a role where one of two things, A, you probably have to do that on top of your day job. So, you know, you've still got your day job to do with the same level of expectation and, and resource allocation and utilization, yet you're expected to do this additional thing on top of all of that. Or secondly, you get into a role where you actually start to, it may be serving the your employer very well. It may, it may actually be an internal project that needs doing, um, frankly, but it takes you further and further away from the fee-earning kind of coalface role that you were doing previously. And the danger then is that should you then choose to leave in the future, you go out to the wider market, you've kind of stepped away from that kind of client management role, you've stepped away from kind of resource management because you've been kind of wholly consumed with doing this internal project for the last two years that, you know, frankly, whilst it may have some value to your current employer, it potentially has very little value to the outside market, certainly when they're looking at employing you for a similar level of role. So let's say for argument's sake, you're currently an associate or a director within a business. Um, you were doing very much a client-facing fee-earning role, and you go to do a role where you're spending a lot of your time on an internal project. You kind of give up those roles. Those roles are given to somebody else in terms of the client management and the kind of fee-earning resource management role. You've been doing that for two years. Suddenly, you decide you no longer want to be there. You go out to the wider market. Prospective employers ask you what you've been doing for the last two years, and you go, well, I've been doing this really important HR projects for the business. And then they'll be like, well, that is great. I'm, you know, pouted up. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. But actually what we're looking for is a director who's been delivering, delivering to key clients and been managing a portfolio for the last two years. Have you been doing that? No, I haven't. Well, then I'm sorry. There's, there's a chance that we probably won't find you of interest. Just be mindful of that. It's, it's definitely a trap that people can get into. The next is getting you you know, dangling that very shiny, exciting project in front of you. So getting you involved in, a, I don't know, a new 500 million pound project. Well, again, be very careful here. Obviously, it serves the client. It serves the, sorry, it serves the in company to have you, you and the team of people probably on that project because it's probably generating them some great fees. And certainly, you know, let's say a 500 million pound project could, could last anywhere between, let's say, for argument's sake, three to five years, or two to five years, let's say, they could have you on that project, generating them great fees um, over that period of time. But where does it leave you in your career? Now, they will sell it to you that, oh my gosh, if you've got this project on your CV, then it's going to be great. It's going to be career-defining. You're going to work on one of the most... Um, you know, one of the, one of the most fantastic, one of the most media-grabbing projects that exists at the moment. It's going to, you know, it's going to be such an amazing role for you. It really will define your career. Well, will it? Will it really define your career? So let's take, for example, you are a, I don't know, a 24-year-old project surveyor. You've just become Emrix, and you go on to this massive project. You're on it for the next four years. You've frankly only ever played a bit part in it because it's such a massive project and you're too junior um you come out at the end of those four years you look around some of your um either colleagues in the same business or maybe um peers in the industry people who maybe you graduated with um they've since gone on to manage numerous projects under their own steam from cradle to grave they've progressed up through the ranks they've got used to managing a higher a higher number of people they've perhaps got promotions above you 
and suddenly you're sat there going, well, yeah, but I've got this fantastic project on my CV. And then you go for an interview elsewhere and prospective employers say to you, so what have you, what have you been doing? It's like, well, I've, you know, I've, I've managed, um, I've managed the cost for the facade on this project. I've, um, I've managed the cost for, you know, some, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You've managed, you've managed some elements of the project. Um, okay. Have you, have you been client facing? No, my, my, my director did that. Okay. Um, have you, have you, you know, have you, have you negotiated heavily with contractors? No, sorry. My director did that too. And, and, you know, on and on and on. Whereas if you were managing smaller projects on your own, your own steam, you'd have done the whole thing. You'd have gone from feasibility. You'd have gone from tender evaluations. You'd have gone from um, appointing contractor. You'd have gone from managing the project throughout and reaching PC. You would have personally done that and you would have invariably gained much more experience about managing that. Yes, the projects may not have been as sexy or as exciting on paper, but actually your learning curve would have been absolutely huge compared to being stuck on one major project. So again, just be very careful when you know, your employer dangles this super exciting mega project, which may look fantastic on your CV, but will it really further your career? Okay, these next two, perhaps a bit more contentious, but but hear me out. <laughs> so really great work facilities, you know, an amazing office, maybe free breakfasts, you know, chill out rooms, foosball tables, blah, 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 blah. Now, yeah, I'm sure such an office environment would be it would be great It'd be a great environment to work in you know maybe the perks having some free food would be would be would be appealing but why are they actually really doing this well they're doing it because they want you to be in the office longer they want you to have a free breakfast so that you can get in the office at seven o'clock and don't have to faff around being elsewhere you can sit and having your have your breakfast at your desk that's great for them it means they squeeze an extra hour of work out of you so just you know genuinely think about some of these things are they really are they doing it again for absolute company wellness for your personal well-being? Or do they just want to kind of squeeze more pips out of you? Do they want to get an extra hour or two out of you per day by keeping you in the office longer? Worth thinking about that one, I would suggest. And then the next one is, um, <laughs> you know, again, this will maybe be contentious, but the whole flexible working piece. Now, if for anybody who follows me on LinkedIn, you will know I bang on and bang on and bang on about companies being more flexible for employees. Uh, and I'm an absolute advocate of it. But again, sometimes you just need to look at the motivation by some of these companies. So some of these companies are, you know, frankly, actually using it as a, as a, as a cost-saving exercise. They will, they will, I don't know, take an office space that has only got a number of desks for half of the people they employ. So, of course, they actually do need you to work from home. They've, they, they've got no choice because, they, because they've done it to, as a, as a cost-saving exercise. Now, that may be all well and good and actually may be part of the strategy that they, they actively do want you to work from home and have that well-being, be able to drop the kids off at school, all of that kind of good stuff. Where it goes, in my opinion, where it goes wrong and where it's actually um, just um, a, a, another, another great cost-saving exercise on behalf of the company and they're not really doing it for the individual's best interest is where they still monitor you like a hawk where you've got to be, you may be working from home, but you've still got to be signed in, God damn it, by 8.30, and you better not sign out of your system for the next, you know, for the next X number of hours. Otherwise, you'll be getting calls from your boss asking you why the hell you're not working, why the hell you're not your workstation. That's not really flexible working. That's not really trust. That's actually, they're still trying to manage you like a battery chicken. They're still trying to make sure that you're goddamn chained to your desk, whether it be at home or not. So is that, is that, is that really absolutely a perk? I don't know. I think in some cases, some businesses genuinely mean well with, with flexible working and intend it for the right reasons. 
Others actually, it's well, you know what, we can save some money by not having as many people sat in the office day to day. But God damn it, we're still going to squeeze the pips hard whilst they're sat at home. They're not having an easy ride, God damn it. They're not slacking. <laughs> it's a, it, I guess my point of this, and I, I may not be explaining this right, but it's a mentality issue with companies. Are they genuinely giving you flexible working to really try and be a great employer and making your life personally easier? Or is it again? for them to sound like they're making your life easier, where actually they're going to squeeze the pips just as hard whilst also saving themselves money and adding more profit onto the bottom line. Oh my gosh, right. I think this could possibly be my longest ever podcast and also quite possibly one of the most bloody rambly ones I've done as well. So I do apologise. Um, but look, I hope that really has given you the opportunity to, to look with a different lens to give you that x-ray vision to actually look and say you know are some of the things that companies or some of my, my employers do for me are they really there to to genuinely help me or are they actually there to again kind of keep me keep me trapped make me work harder you need to just decide that and, and just decide the genuine ethics and the genuine morals of why your employer is doing that and, and think long and hard about it. Don't just take it as verbatim that they're doing you a favor and then trying to look after you. There's a real difference between really amazing employers who, who genuinely want the best for their people. Of course, all businesses need to drive a profit. I'm not, I'm not blooming naive. I'm not, I'm not unrealistic about the fact that if a business doesn't get profit, then, then, then they're nothing. But you just need to look about how they actually treat people and the motivations for companies to treat people that way. And likewise, there are some businesses that are, you know, blatantly are bloody tough places to work where, where they've got a high hours culture, where they do things like tie you into massive notice periods just because it's very difficult for them, prospective employers, to, to go after you. All sorts of things like that. Just look at why they're doing that. These mega shiny projects, are they, are they, you know, is it really serving your career or is it making that company a lot of money in the short term? And as I say, yeah, these swanky, swanky offices, you know, why are they doing that? I, I would say it's to keep you chained to your death longer, in my humble opinion, in, in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases. And yeah, I, I appreciate the last, the most contentious, maybe the flexible working piece. Uh, and as I say again, I'm an I'm a absolute, absolute massive advocate of companies offering employer employees more flexibility. But it's got to be to genuinely um, improve the lot of the the life of the of the individual employee, not um, just a clever cost cutting exercise. Right, I'm going to stop talking now. I need a drink. Have a fantastic weekend, everybody. I hope you find this one useful. It's gone on longer than all of my others, so I do apologise there. Um, and as I say, more to come. And once again, lastly, thank you again for all people who've listened to any of my episodes so far. Have a good one. Bye. 